each hand resting on the outstretched hand of an elderly attendant. Dayu passed through the ornamental gate into a courtyard which had balustraded lodges running along its sides and a covered passageway through the centre. The foreground of the courtyard beyond was partially hidden by a screen of polished marble set in an elaborate red sandalwood frame. Passing round the screen and through a small reception hall beyond it, they entered the large courtyard of the mansion's principal apartments. These were housed in an imposing five-frame building, resplendent with carved and painted beams and rafters, which faced them from across the courtyard. Running along either side of the courtyard were galleries, hung with cages containing a variety of different coloured parrots, cockatoos, white eyes, and other birds. Some gaily dressed maids were sitting on the steps of the main building opposite. At the appearance of the visitors, they rose to their feet and came forward with smiling faces to welcome. everybody and welcome back to rereading the stone i'm kevin wilson uh, here with my co-host will jones will how are you doing today good it's a beautiful day how are things where you are except for mosquito bites it's pretty nice yeah i'm, I'm dealing with some mosquito bites we're recording this on uh, july 24th 2020 mm-hmm. um things are good all things considered reasons to be cheerful this is our fourth installation but this is chapter three mm. of uh honglo monk uh, and this is a pretty interesting chapter. Uh, there's a few very famous, iconic scenes. And we're mm-hmm. about to be introduced to basically one of the main characters uh, of the story, uh, Jia Baoyu. Mm-hmm. Um, any first impressions? Uh, a very singular character. You know, quite unlike... Well, you can see that he definitely stands out from the crowd. It, you know, very kind of recognizable. I don't want to give away too much. Um, uh, but, but yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, did you want to do an overview before our, our like our new innovation for this episode, and maybe uh, going forward, was to maybe do a, a brief overview of the like the, the yeah, of course, do, do, chapter should contents. We, should we just do a quick reminder of what what, what happened last time? Definitely. So in in chapter two, um, it begins in the house of Feng Su, who is the father-in-law of Zhen uh, Xiyin. So in the first chapter, we met two characters, Jun Shiyin, you know, middle-aged, uh, uh, intellectual, wealthy, married, one young daughter. Uh, and at the end of chapter one, his life kind of dramatically falls apart. He loses his daughter, uh, his house burns down, he loses all his money, and he runs off to become a Taoist monk, uh, abandoning his wife, uh, who has to depend on her, her father for support. And... A new magistrate arrives in town and comes, sends men to knock on their door. And they're very concerned. They're worried that this is going to mean that they're, they're going to be carted off. 
But in fact, we discovered that the, the new magistrate uh, is an old friend of Zhen Xiyan's, Jia Yutun, who, when we first met him, had been a penniless intellectual uh, living, living in the temple, we think basically off the, off the charity of the, of the monks there. Uh, but he's now passed the, the examinations to become uh, an official, uh, and he's got his first posting as magistrate of this town where they live. Um, anyway, so the men that he sent have not been sent to uh, arrest anyone, as was feared, but have been merely sent to look for Jun Xiyin and ask what's become of him. And, well, what comes out of that is that he finds out that Jun Xiyin has run off to become a Taoist monk. But we also, you know, uh, Jia who in the first chapter has this uh, encounter in, in, in the garden with, um, with this maid, um, where they have a, a kind of a love at first sight type, type um, glance. Um, they're reunited. She becomes his, his second wife. And then very fortunately for her, his first wife dies. And so she becomes first wife. Um, and we then pass on to find out a little bit more about what's happened to Jia Yutun uh, in his rise from penniless intellectual to um, happily married magistrate. Essentially, we find out he, he passed the exams uh, and did very well and was uh, appointed to this, to this magistracy. But unfortunately for him, uh, despite being very clever and, and you know, no doubt capable in lots of other ways, he manages to rub up people the wrong way a bit. Uh, and some of them write a petition to the emperor and have him removed from his post. Um, but luckily for him, in the short time that he's been a magistrate, he's managed to acquire lots and lots of cash. And so he takes his family back to his hometown, leaves them there, and then goes off on a jolly, traveling all over the country for a couple of years. And he comes to one town, um, and in that town, he ends up teaching the daughter of a rich official. Uh, the official is a man called Lin Ruhai, and his daughter is called Lin Daiyu, isn't she? And this is a very easy posting. Um, the daughter is, is relatively sickly. You know, she's often unwell. So his teaching obligations aren't uh, very kind of onerous. Uh, and then the, his student's mother becomes sick. And so she's spending all of her time tending to her mother. So he doesn't have to really do any teaching at all. But apparently we can assume he carries on, you know, picking up a pretty nice salary. So on one of his days with not much to do, he goes for a long walk in the countryside uh, and he comes across the temple. Um, and we think for a moment that he's maybe going to achieve some moment of enlightenment revelation at this temple. But in fact, the only person there is, is a, a mad old toothless monk. Uh, and he can't understand, understand a word he's saying. So he decides to go and get drunk instead. Um, and, and while at a nearby inn, um, he uh, encounters an old friend, uh, Lung Zixing, who, uh, from my recollection, is a, is a fellow official who's also met a similar fate. He's been, um, he's been removed from his post. Um, and so they get to chatting, and they end up talking about the Jia family, who are, uh, well, the Jia clan, really, which is a, a very kind of large family grouping, um, one with significant power and influence. Um, 
and to which Jia Yutun belongs, albeit through a, a rather kind of minor branch. And they end up talking about two of the most powerful families within that clan, the Ningguo family and the Zhongguo family. And they kind of has a, have a, a gossip all about them, all about how, you know, perhaps once upon a time they were very great and powerful and they declined some way, mostly through uh, the sons of the family being, well, not particularly interested in, uh, you know, working hard and dedicating themselves to, to public service or the accumulation of wealth. We learned that some of them have become uh, Taoists, much like Zhen Jin, who ran off in the, in the first chapter. Some of them spend their time doing alchemy, um, and, you know, uh, and, and some of them are just, you know, um, kind of louche and decadent, spending all their money on, on drinking and um, womanizing and, and so forth. Anyway, this is mostly a way to introduce us to lots of the important the kind of characters. Uh, as previously mentioned, there are some 300 odd characters in, in the book. And so we, you know, we've got to learn who they are somehow. But we come across one of the most important characters, Jia Baoyu, who is uh, the youngest son of one branch of the family. And the special thing about him is that he was born with a piece of jade in his mouth. And we're to understand that this piece of jade is the same stone as the stone we encountered in the first chapter. You know, the, the, one of the alternate names for this novel is the story of the stone. And that stone is this stone that he was born with, uh, you know, in his mouth. So, so from birth, he is considered to be a kind of very lucky or, or special child. Uh, but we learn that he's also, well, rather peculiar in some ways. Anyway, after a lengthy discussion about human nature and different kinds of people, Jiayu Yutun and his friend, Long Zixing, get up to go. Uh, and just as they're leaving, he's greeted by another man called uh, Zhang Rugui, and that's where we leave the chapter. In this chapter, we, uh, we first see what it is that Zhang Rugui has to say. Um, and then we get the story of how Jiayu Tsun accompanies his young student, Lin Dayu, to the capital to stay with uh, the, the Jia clan that we just mentioned, um, to whom she is related through her mother. Okay, awesome, yeah. I, I, how about we just kind of jump right into it? Do you want to talk about, I don't have too much to say about the particulars of uh, Zhang Rugui, and um, Jia Yutuan is obviously very excited, you know, that he might get his position back. Yeah, yeah, so all, all that really happens in that first section is, uh, this character we've never met before, Zhang Rugui, appears. He suffered a similar fate to Jia Yutun, uh, but unlike Jia Yutun, he's been traveling around, speaking to different influential people to try to get these, you know, try to get their punishments, uh, you know, reversed or, 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 or kind of commuted, uh, and has just been successful in doing so, uh, not just for himself, but for Jia Yutun and presumably others. So that's great. So he knows he's back on the gravy train now. And, you know, as long as he doesn't uh, annoy anyone else too much, he uh, he should be made for life. And at this point, um, Jayutuan, he he basically goes and he tells uh, Lin Ruhai 
that you know of the good news and he's gonna he's going to the capital now it's, it's mm -hmm. one of these things like well that's yeah. a a good coincidence because i was just about to send uh, my daughter your student uh lin dayu uh also to the capital on account of her mother's yeah. uh recent demise yeah yeah he says i'm 50 now i don't want to get married again and more than anything, I don't want to raise my daughter. Okay. Um, <laughs> presumably, he also wants to go off and indulge in alchemy or Taoism uh, or, or who knows what. Um, but yeah, it's, it, it's quite sort of telling that this is, I don't know, it's just accepted in the book. It's not really questioned the idea that uh, you have a, a married couple, they have a child, the mother dies, and the father can just decide, oh, well, uh, will just cart her off to her to her grandmother um, and, and everyone just kind of nods and says yeah of course that makes sense um, I don't know I feel like perhaps it wouldn't be quite the same yeah maybe, um, maybe you're right quite the same thing I, I don't know yeah I, I, I don't know it's just it's just it's an interesting uh, look into it, it's kind of skimmed over quite fast but I think it's quite like a, a good um, indication of how you know parental responsibility and sort of like division of responsibility for child rearing uh, is, is was kind of perceived at the time, I suppose. I wonder if it's partly on account of uh, Lin Dayu's kind of sickly uh, disposition. Um, that, the idea being that she would need uh, kind of extra uh, care and attention that a mere man would be un unable to provide, uh, especially on account of, in the capital, as we're going to see, there, there's just a whole host of um, maternal figures and uh, sisterly figures. Yeah. It's probably like a yeah, and there are gendered component to all this. There are servants coming out of your ears as well in, in, in the capital. I mean, I mean, you know, nobody ever seems to be in a room without at least one or two servants present. And quite frequently, you can imagine that there's kind of 10 or more, you know, around the table in various corners and alcoves. Yeah, yeah. I was wondering when exactly we wanted to discuss. It, it really is a, a, like a veritable over-proliferation of waitstaff. Uh, yeah. A lot of them are named. As I'm reading this, I'm like, what well, are these? How important are these characters? What kind of attention should I be paying to them? Should I be like taking notes of the various names and and the, the, yeah. a few of them change names on account of um, various events? Um, but the, it really is uh, really kind of um, driven home the, the sense that a major marker of their wealth is their ability to have. Um, it, it has a, yeah. these elements of. Con Conspicuous consumption, I think. Um, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Before we get to that, let's, let's just talk about Zhao Baoyu takes Lin Daiyu to the capital. Um, yeah. There's kind of an interesting detail where um, Zhao Yutun, w when he arrives at the kind of the Jia estate, he's, um, yeah. it, this is according to the, the, the Hawks uh, translation, he is careful to prefix the word kinsman to his own name. And kinsman yeah. there is, uh, is Zong, Zongzhi. And so last yes. episode, we talked about the, the Zong kind of um, familial unit and its relationship yeah. to surnames and to clan organizations. Yeah. Uh, and this reappears again where he's, he's quick to demonstrate that he's part of the club. Uh, yeah. And hopefully this will give him preferential treatment by this obviously uh, very powerful uh, family. Yeah. Although possibly a family decline, right? Because that's what we heard in the last chapter. That that you know maybe they're they're living outside their means. Uh, yeah. It's it's an open question whether the again the over proliferation of uh, waitstaff is connected to their decline or not. I, I don't know yeah. what the economics are of. I I I don't know. I mean, I, I expect it's probably part of it. I guess probably having you know 
many tens of family members who are who are kind of basically just hangers on and not contributing much probably also puts a bit of a dent in finances um, <laughs> um but you know <laughs> each their own i suppose um, and, and so and, and so to review so so we had the ning ning Wolfu and the wrong Wolfu. Yeah. Um, the, the, the Ning houses and the wrong houses, mm. um, Lin Dayu's uncles in the capital are, they're a part of the wrong, uh, household, the, the wrong, um, establishment. Yeah. And so the elder one, this is kind of review is, uh, Jasha and the younger one is Jajung. Yeah. These are the ones who, uh, their father upon his death, uh, wrote a memorial to the emperor that, uh, secured them certain um positions and access to wealth yeah 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 absolutely so you you kind of get the impression that they hold their positions through uh well a combination of heredity and imperial benevolence um and i mean you can infer from that what you will but but it kind of gives an impression of exactly the sort of family and society that they live in right you know it's one where i guess sort of material wealth is often not uh determined by necessarily merit or ability so much as um yeah those those family bonds and being able to stay on the right side of 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 people in power um okay definitely so right so yeah so 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 just to finish off this bit so jayu sun takes uh Dayu with him up to the capital uh and yeah he has a letter of recommendation from uh lin Dayu's father uh lin ruhai who married a Jia woman, uh, hence the familial connection. And with this letter of recommendation, and with his imposing looks and cultivated speech, as David Hawke says, he is able to get himself another imperial posting. And then he basically exits stage right, you know? He, he, he goes off to this new posting elsewhere, and that's the last we see of him for a little while. And so now we're in the wrong uh, establishment. Yeah. What do you have in your notes? What what do we first see? Any? I mean, my initial impression is that it's lots and lots and lots of descriptions of architecture and servants. Um, I, yes, it's quite it's quite a good passage. We're looking from the viewpoint of this girl, and she's sitting inside the sedan chair. There are curtains uh, draping all around her. You know, gauze curtains that she can kind of see out of, but people passing by wouldn't be able to see in through. And she's carried first through various streets and then arrives at the streets on which both the Rungwa branch of this family and the Ningwa branch of this family have their uh, very grand mansions. Um, and then, yeah, she passes into it, still in sedan chair. Uh, they change who's carrying the sedan chair um, because apparently there's just, a, again, a hyperabundance of, of, of um, servants. And yeah, we get all these very, you know, evocative descriptions of what the interior looks like. And right, right, there's some great stone lions. Yeah, there's also there's, there's a board above the center gate on, on which were written the large characters, uh, Ningguo House, founded and constructed by Imperial yeah. Command. Um, so it's very ostentatious, and and again, it, it is a, uh, explicitly connected to Imperial yeah. Mandate. I did a little research, and there is a, a Ningguo Fu. I don't know if this is being referenced in in, in this work uh, that, that that traces back to uh, the Song mm-hmm. Dynasty. That's also in the Jiangnan region, 
that's kind of all yeah. I really know about it. Maybe that's another kind of um, pseudo, you know, historical. I think reference. he could well be drawing on, yeah, on them, um, on real life, right? On 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 personal experience. And so everyone's really excited to greet the new arrival. Yeah. There's a lot of really uh, kind of elaborate greetings and cow yeah. bowing, uh, bowing. Yeah. Um, and the thing that's going through our girl uh, Lin Dayu's head is <clears throat> she's very concerned about making sure she gets the the etiquette and the ritual correct and not inadvertently giving offense. Mm -hmm. So it's really yeah. to someone who doesn't live within that culture or that time, it's uh, really baffling, certainly to me, uh, and and slightly bewildering. The whole, um, the, the idea of if I was in this situation, I would just have no idea what to do. I wouldn't know what the correct way to address people was or where the correct place would be to stand or to sit and when I would be allowed to stand and sit and so on and so forth. Um, and there are, there, there are kind of various bits through the chapter where she's presented with a situation and um, she decides, oh, I obviously have to sit in this place. And then only after the person that she's speaking to asks you know several times does she finally go and agree and sit in something other than like the most uh the the the, the kind of place with the lowest standing you know so uh, she's like oh i could never sit in the seat of the guest of honor for example and it's only after people say no come on come on come on you are the guest you know you can sit there but she finally does and so it, it gives the impression of a kind of highly elaborate quite complex um etiquette system um, one with a lot of formalities um, and one where, where you can easily you know, trip up and inadvertently cause some offense if you're not extremely well-versed in it. Definitely, right? And, and really all the characters, or most of the characters seem very alert to these ritual formalities, but I would say Lin Dayu is especially mm. uh, conscientious and, and I, I think it's a reflective of her character. I think in many ways she conforms to uh, the traditional like female model pretty closely mm. with some exceptions so basically they because the context of her, her arrival is the death of her mother there's a lot of yeah. grieving which is real and also i think semi-performative yes it's very strange isn't it everyone just starts crying on cue even the servants yes and stops as well on cue yeah so when she first encounters her grandmother uh who's known in the text as grandmother Jia who's, you get the sense is this very important matriarch figure. You know, she clearly runs the household. She is the person of probably greatest influence within the household. Um, although it seems that the, the young, the, you know, the grandson, Jia Baoyu, has her kind of wrapped around his little finger. But otherwise, she is this, you know, figure of great influence. When she and Lin Dayu first meet, uh, she burst into loud sobs while all those present wept in sympathy and Dayu felt herself crying as though she would never stop. Um, so yeah, you're right. It's like you get the impression that this is genuine emotion, but at the same time, there's this highly performative element um, because, you know, from the perspective of plenty of people present, they don't give a shit. Like, I mean, <laughs> this is a young girl they've never met whose mother they've never met uh, or may never have met. Um, that might actually be a good segue into, um, so uh, at this point she meets the three, the three sisters, the, 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 the Chun, the, the, the spring sisters. And there's, again, there's a really ornate, 
uh, descriptions of what they're wearing and their like distinct style of beauty. I'm not going to necessarily, I, I don't want to repeat those. Uh, when I was working through the original Chinese, these were the sections where I, I'd say in general, this, this, this book, it's, it's really not that hard grammatically. Mm -hmm. But then you get to some extremely ornate um, descriptions, and it's just a matter of like, like looking up a million yeah. different terms and, and and sort of scratching your head and hoping there's a picture online or if you like a, a, an image of uh, the various the various things uh, being described. Yeah, you, you have to look up like sixteen different characters in a row trying to read the Chinese for some of these exactly as you say. It's it's like the choice of language that Cao Xuetian uses because he is. I guess such a kind of highly learned and literate person means that for people who don't have that same sort of like background and, and grounding in the same kind of cultural touchstones, uh, it does make it slightly impenetrable sometimes. I did want to uh, mention one quick detail though that I, I kind of skipped over. Yeah. Um, they're talking to Dayu and, and they're asking her, everyone's kind of checking her out, seeing what she's like. She has a delicate uh, composition and she, she seems at all times a little bit sickly. That's almost a part of her personality mm. and character. Um, and, and she mentions a really important detail where it's, it's I'm going to read now from the Hawks translation. She says, I've always been like this. I've been taking medicine ever since I, I could eat and I've been looked at by all the best doctors. Once, when I was only three, I can remember a scabby-head old monk came and said he wanted to take me away and have me brought up as a nun. But of course, mother and father wouldn't hear of it. And this is, again, this is a little bit of foreshadowing. Every time these monks or, or any of these religious figures emerge in the story, they're always performing this kind of meta yeah. role where they are uh, coming from a time outside of time and they're foreshadowing the future yeah and it's also it's it's almost like a, a an echo of the the parts in the first chapter when junji and, and his wife is oh junji on his own is standing outside with his daughter yinglian who i think is also three years old at the time uh when this the buddhist and Taoists come walking down the road and they say that daughter is only going to bring you trouble give her to us but you're right they're they're not just ordinary characters they they have this kind of like meta or slightly surreal kind of role. So that's kind of interesting. This is the moment also when uh, we're introduced to Wang Shifeng, uh, also known as um, Peppercorn mm. Feng, mm. Feng Lazi, uh, which is really there's a really funny passage. I really I really enjoyed this part. What was your impression of uh, of Peppercorn Feng? Well, she's a very striking character. I mean, she's depicted as such, but even just. I mean, you feel like were you to see her in real life, she would be very striking. But even from the text, she sort of um, does kind of burst forth. Um, so unlike everyone else who was uh, ready and prepared for Dayu's arrival, she was off doing something else. And so she kind of bursts into the, into the middle of the scene uh, in a great hurry to see her. Uh, and she's this kind of blaze of energy and she's full of you know kindness and sympathy and yeah she's she's exactly she's the the sort of person who it seems like people are very kind of drawn to and find it very easy to get on with and i th i think genuinely a, a very kind of interesting um noteworthy character within the book at the same time though there is a pretty clear indication that she, her status is much lower than the other the other characters 
Um, and actually, her arriving late, I think, is maybe like an unconscious uh, rebellion against that oh, difference, okay. uh, or maybe an acknowledgement of it at the same time. I was trying to figure out. Um, I think of all the characters, her um, her grief is like the most mm. kind of artificial, and she she's the one who like immediately. Uh, you know, in the text, at once exchanged her grief for merriment. Like, she, she like, flicked the switch. <laughs> yeah, just turns it off. Um, even, even more so than the other ones. Uh, and we also learn later, uh, as they're doing kind of a tour through the um, through this massive establishment, the, the system of homes, basically, and, and temples and, and various things, mm. um, that she lives in a very small house, kind of tucked away in, in an odd part of the, of, of the complex. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you also, there's a few kind of uh, cues here and there that she's almost not exactly a servant, but maybe a manager type in between the servants and um, the, the members of the family proper. While they're talking about uh, all these, um, these formalities, there's also some, I think it's Auntie Wong who, uh, you know, questions uh, Shifeng on the side. And she's like, have this month's allowances been paid out yet? So it's, it's very unglamorous work that she's doing, basically. And the, yeah, there is the issue of preparing um, preparing satins to make up clothes for, for Lin Dayu. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, that's a good point. It's something I hadn't considered uh, while reading through, but we, the expectation might be that she would be kind of um, a relatively sort of uh, demure quiet she just kind of blends in um but instead she very much kind of stands out um uh, and she kind of grabs grabs the attention for herself um but but as you say yeah she does seem to be almost delegated some of the the more mundane day-to-day running of the house and, and so basically they're going to take uh lindai around to meet various members of the family yeah um I, you know in the process, I don't think she meets any of the the male patriarchs in in the family. Yeah, she goes to meet Jasha, and he says, "Well, it's he gives her he has one of the servants read her a very brief message." The master says he hasn't been well these last few days, and as it would only upset mm-hmm. them both if he were to see Miss Lin now, he doesn't feel up to it for the time being. He says, "Tell Miss Lin not to grieve and not to feel homesick. She must think of her grandmother and her aunts as her own family now." He says that her cousins may not be very clever girls, but at least they should be company for her and help to take her mind off things. If she finds anything at all to distress her, she is to speak up at once. She mustn't feel like an outsider. She is to make herself completely at home. And so what, what do we make of that? Do we think that he genuinely is sick or do we think that he's basically just saying some nice things and otherwise brushing off this, you know? That's a good question. And I also wanted to highlight, along with that question, the comment that... Uh... Her cousins may not be very clever girls, because mm. uh, there's going to be later a, a, a description of how the the cousins haven't been taught how to read and mm. write, and so I, I think this is indicative of uh, a different attitude toward female education in this particular branch. Yeah. In all likelihood, he probably thinks of himself as as you know busy and important, and he isn't particularly concerned to uh, you know make time to meet this new arrival uh, she's only just a little girl i guess one other thing just to say is that you know you could argue that the the comment about not very clever girls is reflective i mean yes of course it's uh 
it's a rather insulting, misogynistic comment to make. Um, uh, but it may also be a reflection of the kind of Chinese tradition of uh, always making oneself and one's the things that belong to oneself seem small as a as a as a form of kind of politeness. Um, but but the other side of that is that because he he seems to be suggesting that Dayu, the girl who has just arrived, is kind of one and the same, you know, of the same kind of category as these these other kind of quote unquote stupid girls. Um, you know, he he. I, I think I think it's indicative more than anything else of his of his rather kind of dismissive um, uh, sexist attitude. I would tend to agree. I think we're going to see more um, in mm. the coming chapters. We can get some verification yeah. uh, one way or another. You know, all through this, they're giving us a very complicated uh, description of the the layout of the, the complex, the mansion. Um, and, and I was really having a hard time, like, I'm, I'm not sure how... Uh, I, I was actually looking online as well to see if anyone had tried to create, like, a map of the different places of the different uh, buildings. I, I don't know if, that's, if those details are, are meant to be uh, absorbed or meant to be just sort of passed over and experienced, you know, fleetingly. Um, but I, I thought it was interesting. And I was trying to like in my head, okay, they, they make a right turn here and here's at the, the central gate. Um, at, the, at the current moment, it's it's kind of a blur to me. I, I, I'm not sure. Yeah, and I think, I think that, uh... Well, there's a couple of things to unpack here. Exactly the last point is kind of a blur. I think that um, because we're seeing it through Dayu's eyes and she's just arrived and this is a much bigger house than she's ever, you know, seen or lived in uh, in her life to date, it would all seem kind of like a blur. You wouldn't know where everything is. But I would be interested to see as the story progresses whether this is a one of those houses which is practically possible, which is actually a model on something, or whether it's one of those literary devices where um, such a house could never exist because, uh, you know, it, it only exists within the, within the author's head. And, you know, every time we get a description of it, it seems to have rearranged itself, you know. You used to take the first right to get there, and now suddenly something else is there, or, or you know, this corridor used to lead to this garden, but now it leads to so-and-so's bedroom. And and so, yeah, I'd be interested to see which of those it is, whether, as you say, it's something you could actually map out or whether it's constantly shifting according to the needs of the story. Or maybe a little bit of both, right? Yeah. Um, when I think of, cause, because this is, uh, you know, the, the dream of the Red Chamber, and when I think of dreams, there is, uh, at least in my experience, a highly like spatial element to a lot of my dreams, if not all of them where it's constantly moving from one place to another. But at the same time, you know, sometimes I'll have a dream where it's a very familiar place, but there'll be like a, a room that doesn't exist yeah. in reality. Yeah. Um, oh, definitely. And, I completely so there agree. There might be a little bit of that going on. <clears throat> There's a meal eventually, right? She walks through the hall of exalted felicity. She sees these um, magnificent bronze vessels, you know, basically modeled mm -hmm. on pre-imperial styles. It's a, a lot of like kind of culture... Or, or at least the emulation of culture. Mm -hmm. You have, again, uh, various uh, gateways that are uh, dedicated by uh, Imperial Brush. And so if we arrive upon one of the main, I'm looking at the next here, one of the main galleries in the inner chambers, basically. Yeah. Um, and she's going to have a meal with 
exclusively the female members of the family uh, yeah. up to and including um a grandmother child I mean, there's just one thing to note kind of as we pass, which is we have a, an example of this neurosis about um, etiquette um, in so, so there's a brief scene where she has tea with Lady Wang. And so she's shown into a, a, a kind of apartment where um, there is um, what's called a kang, which is a kind of it's a thing that's fairly specific to northern China. It's essentially an oven that you sit on. So it's like a large, mm -hmm. it's a large brick, brickwork block. Uh, and inside the block, you have, uh, yeah, a kind of stove. Um, and then you arrange kind of rugs and pillows and other comfortable things to sit on, on top of it. So when it's cold outside, you put a fire inside the car. And then the person or people sitting on top of it are kind of warmed by it underneath. So it's kind of like a, a an older version of what was what that thing that you have like heated floors in in you know like people love to put like heated floors in their bathrooms, for example. Just just one section where she says, "Okay, so the old nurses invited Dayu to get up onto the kung. So she's being invited to sit on this thing next to her uh, aunt, cousin, whatever we want to call Lady Wang." So Dayu, guessing that the brocade cushions arranged one on each side near the edge of it must be her uncle's and aunt's places. She deemed it more proper to sit on one of the chairs against the wall below. The maids in charge of the apartment served tea, and as she sipped it, Dayu observed that their clothing, makeup, and deportment were quite different from those of the maids she has seen so far in other parts of the mansion. Anyway, so she, she decides she has to sit in this one place, and then this is just one of a, a, a kind of a series of examples of um, fixation on on you know doing the right thing, uh, on not being seen to be presumptuous or or impolite, uh, and it seems to come up again and again in this chapter, and I think elsewhere. I think this is where she basically has to be forced to sit in, in this one position, which 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 still isn't even the position of honor. And then only after she sits is a Lady Wong, who by the way is uh, Jia Baoyu's mother. Uh, so that's that's Got the it. important Got detail it. there. Um, only then does Lady Wong sit down, and then the three girls ask permission to sit. Uh, and this is the moment where it's almost like a video game they're playing, but the uh, the, the challenges are like navigating, uh, like challenging um, etiquette situations. Yeah. And, and so uh, Lin Dayu, she's offered tea. Mm -hmm. She only at the right moment realizes that the first tea is not actually for for drinking, um, not for drinking. It's for mm -hmm. um, for spitting out, for washing your mouth out. And yeah. only after that, you get the second tea, which is for drinking. Mm. So this is, you know, if you're playing the, the etiquette video game, this is like the at least the yellow level. This is the, the medium yeah. challenge, yeah. you know, because how, how do you distinguish uh, mouthwashing tea from uh, actual drinking tea? It's the same tea. So, yeah. you know, that's pretty challenging. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> I think it's to this point where... Um, uh, grandmother Jia dismisses the servers because she wants to have a nice kind of more intimate mm. chat with her grandchild uh, yeah. uh, quote without the restraint of their grown-up presence mm. and so Lady uh, Lady Wong she quote obediently rose to her feet uh, mm. and then went out taking uh, Wang Shifeng with her right uh, yeah uh, Feng Lao this is the point where a grandmother Jia asked Dai Yu what book she was reading, and she responds with the uh, the four books, which are basically mm. uh, just for, for the record. Those are one chapter of the Li Ji, 
Book of Rights, the the Great Learning or the Dashue, right? And, and another the the Zhongyong, yep. another the, the Doctrine of the Mean, as well as Lunyu, the Analects, and yep. the Mengzi, right? And, and then Daiyu in turn asks what what books her cousins are reading, and, and she's like, they don't read books, <laughs> they can't even they can barely mm -hmm. even read or write. Um, and that's another yeah. indication again of this this kind of different attitude, maybe a kind of a reflection of Jiajung's sort of approach toward education. And so we're going to see a lot yeah. of that, I think. Uh, I, I think it's that I guess there's an echo that Cao Xueqin would not have, of course, been able to recognize at the time uh, because it only emerged subsequently. But uh, there is this, I guess, this kind of neat parallel between Dai reading the four books as she describes them, which, as you said, are these four like kind of canonical texts of 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 um, Chinese uh, philosophy, really. Um, as you said, Malta, Confucius, Zhongyong, and the BG. Um, and the fact that this book, right. uh, The Dream of Red Chamber, would go on to be one of the, in a modern sense, like four books, the four like great texts of, of, of Chinese literature. Um, so, I mean, it's obviously completely inverted because how would he know that his his text would go on to be this, have this kind of great revered status. But I do think it's kind of interesting. I, when I first read that, I thought, hmm, <laughs> that's, that's kind of weird because I thought of the four books as being the modern ones. Not yeah, the classical. Is she reading her own book? <laughs> um, and, and maybe in a, in a sense she yeah. is when she comes across uh, Jia Baoyu and, and his jade on which the story is said to be, yeah. to be written. So that's the kind of the meta, uh, the meta element to the story. Yeah. Um, I think that's basically the gist of it. It's basically at this moment when we have the entrance of of the star uh, of, of Jia Baoyu. We will recall that yeah. uh, Lin Daiyu. Daiyu uh, means one interpretation is like a, a black a black jade, right? Whereas Baoyu is yeah. um, a precious jade, uh, and this is this is the the son who was born yeah. with the, the jade in his mouth. Who is Dai Yu's yeah. um, cousin, and who's older than her by one year? Um, should we should we give yeah. the? Do you want to read the description of? Um, there, there's a pretty lengthy description of Bao Yu, and there's there's two poems. He gets you know he's an important character because he gets yeah. two poems. Yeah, he does, doesn't he? Well, we can do a brief description. So, so she and her grandmother are in a conversation about uh, what she's studying, and the grandmother is just dismissed the laughable notion of teaching her granddaughters to read. While they were speaking, a flurry of footsteps could be heard outside, and a maid came in to say that Baoyu was back. I wonder, thought Daiyu, just what sort of graceless creature this Baoyu is going to be. The young gentleman who entered, in answer to her unspoken question, had a small, jewel-encrusted gold coronet on the top of his head, and a golden headband, low down over his brow, in the form of two dragons, playing with a large pearl. He was wearing a narrow-sleeved, full-skirted robe of dark red material, with a pattern of flowers and butterflies in two shades of gold. It was confined at the waist with a court girdle of coloured silks, braided at regular intervals into elaborate clusters of knotwork and terminating in long tassels. Over the upper part of his robe, he wore a jacket of slate-blue Japanese silk damask, with a raised pattern of eight large medallions on the front and with tasseled borders. <laughs> and on and on and on it goes. It describes at length his, his dress, uh, and we have the poem, and a lot of detail uh, about him. Um, and then he goes away, because he, he just came home, 
and he comes back. He has a new yeah. dress on or a new outfit on, and and that's also described in, in great detail. Yeah. Um, it, it seems like it's a more casual version of the same sort of thing. Yeah, well, it, it, it's funny, isn't it? So he comes kind of storming into the room, and he basically goes, "Hi, Granny," and then he leaves. Um, you know, uh, he doesn't even acknowledge the uh, the presence of Daiyu, his cousin, who he's never met before. Uh, and yeah, and then he goes off to see his mum, and he gets changed and, and reemerges in this other, equally kind of, almost sort of like ludicrously grand outfit. They seem to be constantly just dressed in gold jewelry, um, adorned with uh, precious stones and rich fabrics in these kind of elaborate uh, combinations. And, and so, as you said, I mean, you were touching on the kind of conspicuous consumption point before. Uh, the displays of wealth here are, are very conspicuous. They're very just immediately apparent. You know, it's, it's not in any way kind of uh, hidden or downplayed. And, you know, one thing I, I did omit to mention was uh, earlier, uh, Lady Wong, who, who again is, is Jiao Yu's uh, mother, she had warned Dai Yu that, you know, like my son is, mm. is a bit of a like little tyrant. And he's going to be around a lot. He's going to be like, yeah, yeah. He's going to cause a lot of trouble. And just do your best to, just to ignore him. Basically, that's the gist of her like advice. And and she, she's very adamant about this. Uh, and so like he like true to form, almost immediately starts causing trouble. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Also, the whole time he's wearing the jade, the you know, the famous jade around his neck, in a kind of some kind of clasp you know, with a golden chain and so on and so forth. Mm. So there's one thing that I just wanted to touch on. I, I mentioned previously that, of course, they haven't met before. Um, you know, having been born and grown up in, in different parts of China. But they both have this uh, initial reaction, which is to feel as though they have met. So when he first storms into the room, uh, there's a passage which says, uh, Dai Yu looked at him with astonishment. How strange, how very strange. It was as though she had seen him somewhere before. He was so extraordinarily familiar. And then once Bayou comes back into the room having changed, he also says, he kind of takes a look at her from head to toe. And we have this very lengthy description of how she looks. And then having completed his survey, Bayou gave a laugh. I have seen this cousin before. Nonsense, said Grandmother Jia. How could you possibly have done? Well, perhaps not, said Bayou. But her face seems so familiar that I have the impression of meeting her again after a long separation. So they, they both have a, a like reaction, which is um, a feeling not of meeting for the first time, but instead of a reunion mm -hmm. after a very lengthy separation. I also want to highlight uh, in the description of, of Bao Yu's um, reaction to, to Dai Yu, uh, where he's kind of observing her unique sort of delicate beauty um it, it's mentioned uh yeah. she had more chambers in her heart than the martyred uh began and she and she suffered a tithe mm. more pain in it than the beautiful shisha uh and this was interesting um so so th let's go over some of these things so, so began was uh, a prominent figure during the shang dynasty um he was a son of um mm. king wending uh and an uncle of the last tyrannical king adishin right and began was he was executed under the pretext of uh, to see how many uh, openings his heart had. And so the idea is that uh, mm. 
mm-hmm. Lin Dayu is so sensitive, she has even more, you know, like chambers in her heart than an ordinary person. And as for um, the, the Shishu reference, mm-hmm. Shishu is one of the, the, the four beauties of, of ancient China. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to be uh, important later because she also, well, there's kind of two accounts of her, of her demise, right? She dies on account of her beauty, right? At, at least according okay. to one of these accounts. But in the process becomes famous for, you know, the influence she had on, on, on all the people who observed her. Um, and this is kind of uh, in the background when, so after, after they both have this like mutual kind of eerie, impossible, surreal recognition, um, immediately uh, Bao Yu starts questioning her. And he, he asks, what's your uh, Biaozi? What's your, what's your school name or your like style name, you know? Um, yeah. and Ayu says she doesn't have one. And so Bao Yu's like, well, I'm going to give you one. Uh, and it's a really, a really great passage where he says, yeah. um, I, in the Hawks translation is, I think Frowner would, uh, would, would suit you perfectly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and, and so yeah. this requires some explanation. So the, the Chinese is Pinpin, um, which, yeah. which is sort of. My, to my understanding, it involves um, a frown or kind of the the, the position your eyebrows make, particularly yeah. when you're when you're crying, right, or when you're you're feeling grief. Ah, I see, I see. Yeah, yeah. I knew it was a sort of knitting of the brows, but but yeah, that, I right. think that's. And, and so the the idea behind Ayu is that she's gonna repay her debt to the stone through you know a lifetime of tears, right? And we've we've already seen this. She's very weak, and she cries a lot. And so Bao Yu is actually like he's resonating with with his immediate impression of her, but also his um his impossible memories from a past life. But what's kind of funny here is that you know one of the cousins were like, well, what's your reference for this name? Because the, the I think the idea is uh, Biaozi has to have some kind of um, literary reference to it. But of course, uh, yeah. Bao Yu is uh, like a, a, a terrible student, so he doesn't have a reference. And so he says. Um, in yeah. the Hawks translation, in the Encyclopedia of Men's and Objects, Ancient and Modern, it says that somewhere in the West, mm-hmm. there's a mineral called dye, which can be used instead of eye black for painting the eyebrows with. She has dye in her name, and she knits her brows together in a little frown. I think it's a splendid name for her. Uh, and and yeah. then the, the, the cousin's like, I, I think you made that up. <laughs> and, and he did. There's, no, um, there's no such work. Uh, he calls it the Gujin... Ranwu uh, Tongkao, which is just like a like it sounds like yeah. it would be a name for like a real word, yeah. but it just it doesn't exist. It's completely fabricated. Um, yeah, but but I did a little research, and uh, I was looking for the this this early references to this um, Pin Pin, this Pin character, uh, and, and also the the frown is uh, Tool. It's a, a C U unfortunately. Um, and there actually is um, a reference of, um, particularly in the in the context of uh, of, of Shishir, actually in, in, so in, in the Drongsa, in this really famous uh, Taoist text from the pre-imperial mm-hmm. period. Um, there's a line uh, where the, the leg translation is, um, when Shishir was troubled in mind, she would knit her brows and frown on all in her neighborhood. And actually this, um, it, it's an interesting passage because it goes on and, and apparently, you know, her frowning would make her even more beautiful. That's how beautiful she was. But then there's an ugly <laughs> lady in town, according to the Drongsa, and she would start doing the same and she would start frowning, but it would make people even more, um, you know, repelled by her. 
And so it's this exercise <laughs> in the relativity of aesthetics. Uh, it's, yeah. it's a pretty interesting passage. Um, but but like this is the actual. So the, the, there there really is a kind of a a real literary uh, reference hiding behind Jabaoyu's kind of uh, fabrication. Mm. Uh, I, I thought it's kind of interesting. Um, yeah. And actually, the cosmetic dye. Uh, I, I also found this again in a reference in connection to um, Shishir in the Han Fades, another one of these early texts, where uh, it, it was said yeah. that she would wear this kind of dye. Uh, I think I think it's eyebrow makeup to you know multiply her beauty. Oh, okay, okay. So yeah. like, so it's kind of a nice, interesting little tangent. He's kind of partially uh, plucked it out of thin air. There, there is actually a real literary historical basis for for what he's saying here my, my sense is that the author is at one hand kind of making fun of this character who again represents himself at, at the yeah. same time where he he really yeah. is i think uh engaging with this whole history of literature in, in a pretty like sophisticated way he's kind of you know walking the, the line there and here's maybe one of the most famous scenes from this chapter or even from the book more generally where uh uh, Jabaoyu asks Lin Daiyu, do you have a jade? And, mm -hmm. uh, and Daiyu's like, no, no, you have a jade, but that's a very, like, that's very rare. That's, that's, that's your special thing. Um, and the surprise reaction is Baoyu is just incensed. And he actually, yeah. he throws the jade on the ground and everyone's afraid that he might have broken it. And so everyone's startled and like completely aghast yeah. at this sudden change of mood and temper. And, and it's so bad that um, Grandmother Jia actually lies to him. And she's like, no, like your cousin did have a jade, but you know when her mom died, yeah. she decided to have the jade buried with her, and so she doesn't have it anymore. Mm -hmm. And so you don't have to worry about. It. So this is really interesting. Um, I think Jabaoyu's exact line is, "What's so good about a stone? You know, if nobody else has it, I don't want it." He says yeah. very specifically, "None of the other girls have one. Only I have one. You know, it upsets me." Yeah. Um, yeah. How did you? What's your interpretation here? Because I, I have a very specific interpretation, but I want to hear yours first. Uh, look, I think there are a lot of ways you could interpret it. Um, I mean, it seems like uh, like there's a very clear sort of Freudian approach here, and that may be <laughs> maybe what you're what you're getting at. Um, it is, yeah. Uh, so <clears throat> I'll leave that to you to unpack, but. But I mean, there are a number of different ways you can understand what the jade means, what it, like what it what it represents here. It could be uh, something more like a kind of destiny or 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 the burden of responsibility, you know. So so he is one of the few you know male children, and he feels that you know he has this you know this uh, weight of of this responsibility of being the man of the household and that's somehow embodied by the jade that he wears. Or it can be because he was born with this jade in his mouth and now he wears it around his neck and because of its existence, people assume that he he <clears throat> has some great, you know, a destiny to fulfill in life. He feels the, the, the burden of it upon him. It could be, I suppose, like all manner of different things. Um, uh, maybe it's it's some kind of uh, mystical or magical uh, almost taint that comes with it um, that he feels upon himself. But I think there's a particular interpretation that you have in mind, which I would be very interested to hear. Okay, I'm going to preface this by saying that I favor a, a kind of a, a proliferation of interpretations, mm -hmm. you know, this kind of over-determination of meaning that 
lends itself to a certain richness, yeah. right? So all those things you said, I think those are all um, valid ways to look at this, or at least to consider the possibility, right? The reason why I'm like a little more animated right now uh, is that, you, you know, when you apply um, like Freudian theory to um, Eastern literature, mm -hmm. the common critique is that, you know, this is a kind of a Orientalist imposition. Yeah. Uh, where you're taking this foreign structure and you're like you're fitting it in in, in a way that is artificial, and and the second critique yeah. is that you know Freudianism is said to be inherently uh, maybe like chauvinistic, uh, where you have these ideas of things like um, like like quote unquote penis envy and yeah. um, the fear of castration, where it's claimed that these concepts are limiting or or like anti-feminist and, and so on and so forth. Yeah, or or at, at the least very sort of like male male centric or 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 yeah. Right, and, and I'm kind of critical of those critiques because I, I think you really can do uh, a kind of a, a dialectical Freudianism or a, a feminist Freudianism. And so what we see here isn't it's kind of the inverse of the the classic model where you have the um, like female genitalia is perceived as an absence or the. Okay. Well, here it's it's almost like you know, Jabao Yu has this phallic possession, yeah, and he wishes he didn't have it, yeah. Um, and so it's actually an envy of absence or an envy of 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 the opposite form, you know, of the, you know the. Yeah, and so to to use like a uh, um, a contemporary term, um, could we say that he is experienced like he may be experiencing some form of like dysphoria about like about his assigned gender do we think like is this is it suggesting that he does genuinely uh think of himself as a girl or wish that he were perceived as a girl um is it something else i mean is is it like the jade is the penis he does not want the penis he wants to be a girl uh or or, or is it is it more complex than that i would say I, I wouldn't want to limit the interpretation i would say different people can take this different interpreters can take us in different directions you could say yeah it is maybe mm -hmm. it is this kind of um uh cross or, or or trans identification of some sort maybe it is something like what's often in, in the literature referred to as like womb envy but it, it, this really highlights the possibility for um, this model to be very dialectical. I, I'd even say you could have both at the same time. You could have something like womb envy and castration anxiety yeah. at the same time. And they're going to interact in yeah. complicated ways because the mind is a complicated thing. And, and it, it's sort of, it allows for contradiction in a way that physical objects can't. Like you can't place two cups in the same place. But I think with when it comes to like the the human mind and, and the unconscious, you can have conflicting desires and maybe even at the same time in some capacity. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that I would agree that it, the jade and values attitude towards it um, have a very great symbolic importance, but it embraces like a real multitude of different um, significances, I suppose. There is one thing I just wanted to touch on very briefly, which is in this passage, but but which doesn't relate directly to the jade, but it's just an interesting thing to observe about society at the time. Um, so when he, I, I kind of imagine that his cousin, Dayu, tries to, uh, you know, compliment him on his special jade, and he snatches it or, or off, you know, he tears the necklace off his neck and hurls it at the floor and starts kind of ranting and raving about it. And his, yeah, his grandmother's um, response is to say, um, you know, if if you're angry, the appropriate way to kind of um, 
relieve that anger or unleash it is to shout at someone, but not to damage your, your precious jade. Um, it's such a kind of strange way of conceiving the world to me that um, they would elevate a small object to a higher status than a human being. You know, don't damage the necklace. Punch someone in the face if you need, or, or scream and yell at them. That's completely fine. Presumably the people that he's talking about, uh, the people that she's talking about in this case are, are, are their servants, you know, because it's very strongly implied that there's this kind of hierarchy of uh, importance. But don't, whatever you do, break this little necklace. Um, it's oh, wow. just, yeah. I think that that's like a fascinating insight into the way that certainly their kind of upper class uh, nobility uh, thought at the time, you know. You know, I completely missed that, but yeah, I'm seeing that right now in in the text, and, and that is a strange thing to say. Um, <laughs> it, it, it is just kind of weird. Um, yeah, I guess yeah. like material fetishism or something. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. That that is something very strange to say offhandedly. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's said in it's said, I guess, in haste, isn't it? But but it's her really letting the mask slip. If indeed these kind of things are genuinely concealed and not just said openly. But, but she's very much revealing like um, her hierarchy of importance, you know. Um, at the top is this precious jade, um, and at the bottom is, you know, or some way further down there, the personhood of, of all of her servants, I guess, yeah. That kind of leads into a, a question of um, the extent to which this novel is a, a kind of societal critique, right? Yeah. Um, and I think this has been pretty hotly debated, uh, you know, in the last a couple hundred years, where it's not always clear because there is this um, dedication to realism, uh, at least partially. Yeah. You know, except for the yeah. the obviously surreal elements. The question is whether this is realism for the sake of critique or realism for the sake of just mere uh, representation. Yeah, um, and 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 I mean, it says right at the start when I think the Taoist monk and the stone are in conversation. The stone says, you know, this is not a, this isn't a story of morals. You know, there aren't like, um, there's, there aren't necessarily any, any value judgments inherent in the story. That doesn't mean that they, those don't exist. You know, we can easily see that, as you say, it could be Tsaltsyotian writing it just as a, purely as a reflection of what society uh, was like at the time. Or there could be, as you say, an implied criticism of the way that society exists and the values that people have. Um, I guess we'll have to see as the as the story plays out, but I would be interested to pay attention to Grandmother Jia in particular, because she seems to be, as the matriarch of the family, a uh, kind of physical embodiment of that system of values. I feel like these were like some of the major uh, things in the chapter. Um, there's some kind of like aftermath of this event. One servant named Aroma whose original name was Pearl, but then was renamed by Bao Yu yeah. uh, on, on the kind yeah. of just on a whim after reading a, uh, a bit of poetry about yeah. a, a flower's aroma, which again is, is maybe indicative of the extent to which these relations are highly unequal. You know, being even able to change somebody's name uh, is the ultimate yeah. sort of um, sign of possession, basically. I, I don't know if you got the same impression reading it. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Yeah, I mean, there's um, exactly that. Like the servants are, I wouldn't say necessarily depicted as playthings, but they're depicted as 
they're certainly objectified. The way that exactly on, on a whim, this kind of mad child can just say, oh, I've decided uh, you shouldn't be called Pearl, you should be called Aroma because um, your surname is Hua, which is like a flower, um, is, yeah, exactly that. But two things, I suppose. The fact that uh, Bao Yu is constantly kind of coddled and um, humoured and his every kind of whim is entertained without uh, without so much as a, a criticism. But yeah, also it's a reflection of, of the same thing that we observed before, that, that um, there is this highly unequal power relationship and there's a, there's a clear hierarchy between different humans uh, of, of, I guess, kind of the importance and respect afforded to them. I wonder if we were to like count up all the like the servants that are mentioned in this chapter do you think it's maybe like a hundred or so I, I mean they aren't all mentioned <laughs> by name but if you just sort of yeah collect every room seems to have like a few people just waiting in it um this has to be a huge drain on yeah the yeah yeah I, I, I don't know like uh, absolutely yeah uh but but that seems to be the way that like a lot of this kind of society functions. You know, you, you have a huge number. You have a small number of people who are very wealthy, and a huge number of people who are extremely poor. And there is a huge imbalance of power between them, right? And so that results in you know manpower, labor being extremely cheap, um, and, uh, and and very plentiful. And and yeah, so exactly, you end up in a situation where you have. Um, a hundred servants, exactly. Yeah, so there's a scene here that, that while they're eating it says, while Li Wan and Xi Feng stood by the table helping to distribute food from the dishes, maids holding fly whisks, spittoons, and napkins ranged themselves on either side. In addition to these, there were numerous other maids and serving women in attendance in the outer room, yet not so much as a cough was heard throughout the whole of the meal. A maid served each diner with tea on a little tray. I think it would be impossible really to count because in some cases they're not even really enumerated, but the impression that one comes away with is definitely one of um, either every room is is kind of full of servants or you're never more than a room or two away from someone who can fetch you something or send that you know deliver a message for you or whatever by the way um, the fact that Shi Feng was standing in uh, and serving dishes and serving foods again others, yeah, another yeah, kind of subtle indication of her uh, relative status, right? Not exactly on the same level, but obviously above the servants. Um, yeah. Or the, yeah. Kind of like a, a managerial position, it almost seems. Um, I, yeah. I want to maybe end with a discussion of... So after the, the incident with, um, the, you know, the throwing of the jade, um, yeah. the, the, the maid uh, aroma that we mentioned, she kind of... She goes off into another room where, where, where Dayu is, can be heard uh, crying. And, and Dayu is also being attended by, again, two maids um, who've been like stationed mm. there, essentially. And so what's, what's going on here is that uh, Dayu is, is upset that, you know, on account of their interactions, mm. you know, this precious, this precious jade was, was almost uh, destroyed. Yeah, which I'm, again, interpreting as uh, like an indication of her extreme sensitivity over concern with ritual propriety and yeah. um and, and pleasing other people yeah which again absolutely. seems to be she seems to have taken um certain elements of the, the the kind of like the, the female model and taken them to their limit to the very extreme 
And so I kind of wanted to ask you, um, you know, because again, we were told that uh, in the previous chapter that uh, women or girls are made of water, whereas men are made of of mud. And here we have Lindayu, who's like all about crying. So her like her essence is very visibly water. Yeah. Um, my more philosophical question would be, we've been talking a lot about how this is a question of the space between reality and fiction, Jia and Jen. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she's a Lin, but she's also, she, she's, I mean, she's surnamed Lin, but she's also, you know, of Jia descent in, yeah. in some capacity. And so do we think, what do you think about Lin Dayu? Is she, is she real? Could she be a real person or does she represent a kind of a, a fantasy of some, of some sort, you know, like yeah. a, a specter yeah it's it's a good point isn't it um i mean she uh, I, I was quite um kind of fixated on her frailty um and in that case <clears throat> in that sense she sort of reminded me of quite a lot of characters from uh, almost from um english literature of kind of the victorian era which is full of exactly those sorts of characters people who are consumptive or they have some other frailty right. and and um and so, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of interested in that in the same way, I suppose. We, we never really know exactly what it is that's wrong with her, and I suppose we can only really speculate. Um, and so maybe this is, again, a parallel with Shishir, where she's already beautiful, mm-hmm. but her but her, her sadness, you know, really, like, takes her over the top. It accentuates the beauty um, somehow, yeah. Yeah, and and, right? and that's that's so interesting because it's it's um, it's very sort of, like, male gaze, isn't it? You know, it's... Um, She's beautiful, mm. and then her sadness and and waif-like thinness uh, makes her more beautiful to me. And and let's just disregard the, the the suffering that she personally experiences on account of that. Yeah, for that reason, I think that you're you're right that she's a sort of like representative character somehow. She um she's intended to, like you said, like Xixi or or any of the other kind of like great beauties from Chinese um, history has like a uh, like a mythical or representative function, um, in addition to like having her own her own character. And, and so maybe this gets back to this idea of Ching uh, Feng, the uh, the green sickness peak. Yeah. And these ideas of I, I would even like take this to the level of like aesthetics, or even like it, it's really kind of a, a mystery to me how we like how human attraction works. Um, because it isn't like we're automatically choosing for like strength or for, you know, it's not like you automatically just go for the person who's the tallest or the, the strongest, especially when it comes to the, the female form, which seems to be um, on one level. I mean, I'm, I'm sure attraction is based upon health, um, you know, skin complexion, which is an indication of um, the, the presence or absence of sickness. Yes. Uh, and, and the quality of one's diet and so on and so yeah. forth. Um, but there is, again, this weird element where it's not just, there is an appeal to weakness. Yeah. And it's, it's strange and it's hard to put your, it's conceptually hard to kind of put your fingers on. Like, why would, is there a strength in weakness? Why w- wouldn't that be, you know, unappealing? Yeah, on a, and so exactly. I, on a, like a pure, on a purely evolutionary level, right? Like, well, exactly. Yeah. Or, or, like, yeah. On a rather like, yeah, brutally transactional kind of way, you would think like weakness, frailty, would not of itself be, uh, yeah, appealing or attractive. It's it's a it's a funny thing, I guess. It's it's um it's one of those things where we often like to do this 
kind of retrospective rationalization where you say, oh, I'm attracted to this person because X, Y, and Z, which are just reasons that you've made up in your head afterwards. I mean, it's not like you decided to be attracted to them because you had this existing checklist of traits that you find attractive Mm -hmm. and they tick them. I mean, uh, it seems often that you, those decisions are made too quickly for you to really perceive um, a lot of the time. Or if not too quickly, at like a, a, a level of consciousness that you're not, you're not always totally aware of, you know. It, the idea just pops into your rational mind, fully formed one day. Either when you first see someone you think they're attractive, or if it builds up over a longer amount of time, it kind of seems like the idea formulates slowly in some some part of your mind and then suddenly just emerges fully formed. And I think it's very difficult to unravel how that all comes about. Um, but it seems relevant, right? Yeah. Because we're dealing here with a first impression. At the same time, it seems like it's not a first impression. And this seems to be a common experience that people have where you know we have this idea of love at first sight. Yeah. Um, I would also, I would point out the kind of the opposite phenomenon where you know to be afraid of like a snake or a spider without you know necessarily having the experience of seeing one before yeah. so in some capacity these there does seem to be if you want to take it in like an evolutionary round there does seem to be like a, a kind of something akin to like an instinctual memory yeah and and i wonder when we have these um when, when there are these immediate experiences that seem surreal that seem impossible it seem like whether it, it's it's dealing with um similar cognitive functions where i i think i, I, I think it, it's yeah but I, I do think it sounds like it comes from the same the same place ultimately right um this like not fully conscious level definitely um i was just rereading because you know when we see that they're first introduced there are there are poems describing both jia, jia Baoyu and Lin Daoyu. um and one of the things uh that it, that it brings up is her similarity to a kind of flower. So in stillness, she made one think of a graceful flower reflected in the water. In motion, she called to mind tender willow shoots caressed by the wind. And yeah, I think that that's true. A, a lot of the flowers that people find most beautiful are ones that are uh, most easily damaged. Definitely. And, yeah. and um, so, I mean, it seems rather an obvious one, but I think there's, there's a parallel there between their kind of you know, her frailty and, and weakness and, you know, something like a flower, which is, um, which has this beauty, but which is also very fragile, you know? Um, and I think it's that, 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 that Salchiotian is sort of getting at. I would also recommend anyone um, who, who's kind of trying to visualize these things to check out the, the, the 1987 uh, television ad- adaptation uh, of Hong Lomang, where I, I think they do a really good job of casting, in particular, Lin Dayu where uh, you get a sense for what might be in the imagination, yeah, uh, in, in the cultural imagination and, uh, um, for, the, for this character. And that's on YouTube. This is all kind of a way to, um, to return to questions of um, what the author is c- trying to focus on. You know, what does it mean if this is a novel focused on people and upon like human emotions? Is there any kind of takeaway significance to that, you know, in a in a philosophical or even like a political sense? Um, that's kind of that's one thing that is kind of floating around in the back of my head right now. I don't know if I have any um, ready answers to that. 
do you want to talk about there is a cliffhanger yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so where, where where the chapter ends we have uh, again the character Wang, Wang Sifeng uh, mm. props up again um, so early the next morning um, you know the day after the incident with the jade mm. grandmother Jia Lady Wang that is Jia Baoyu's mother and Wang Sifeng this uh <clears throat> this sort of minor cousin who who holds the status of almost that of a kind of senior servant rather than a full member of the family are discussing uh, a letter which had just arrived from Nanjing and what the letter says is that a cousin, you know, a, I'm using the term very loosely here, some kind of relative uh, called Xuepan um, who lives there has killed someone and it's under investigation by the magistrate in that place. Yeah, so I guess if you want to find out more about this um, this crazy murder, uh, tune in to the the next installation of Rereading the Stone. <laughs> uh, until then, uh, uh, good night. Good night.